that's it right there. You just said it, right? It's like when we get frozen to not making decisions, I think we are often uh, so trying so hard to make the right decision, avoid the wrong decision. Mm. But in fact, there is no right or wrong decision. There's just decisions or no decisions. Mm-hmm. And I think it, you know we have to be really thoughtful of like, who are we listening to and what information are we allowing in that helps us make the decisions that we make. Are you looking for freedom? Freedom from the daily grind and hustle? Or just finding a way to live the life you always wanted? Then join us on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Our host, Mike Ayala, will help you discover new ways to find freedom with tips, insights, and interviews. You'll learn the exact systems he's used to travel the world and live his best life. True success and happiness are all about freedom. And here's your roadmap on how to find freedom on your own terms. Welcome to the Investing for Freedom podcast. Here's your host, Mike Ayala. Thank you for joining me on the Investing for Freedom podcast. We're going to go a little different direction on the show today because I have a returning guest and one of my literal favorite humans in the world. We're, you know, we were just talking a while back about, um, you know, ears to the ground. And, and one of the things that I've been so blessed by is just all the different relationships, people in different sectors. Um, you know, we get all this information from the news and the media and negative And, you know, I love talking to people whose ears are on the ground in different areas. And there's this concept of confirmation bias or information bias where we get, you know, like I'm a real estate investor or I'm in the plumbing business or I'm in, you know, vacation or hospitality or whatever. And we get into these echo chambers where um, we just kind of get into, I mean, even with masterminds and conferences, we're going, we're going to the same events and we're listening to the same people and we get into our own echo chambers. And this is why I love having conversations like we're going to have today, because this guy has his ears to the ground. He's talking to people on the front lines in a lot of different areas. And I don't think there's anything more important in times that are tumultuous and big change like right now to get opinions from people in different sectors, different voices of things that are going on out there. So I am super excited to bring Ashish, a good friend of mine back. Thanks for being on the show, brother. Of course, man. You are also one of my favorite human beings on the planet. And you've had such an impact on me. And I'm super excited to always talk to you, but press the record button and share what we're going to learn today and what we've learned in the past to to provide some insight for people. And it's all about growth and expansion. So I'm excited to be here. You know, um, off camera, we talked for, I mean, heck, it was almost probably 10 or 15 minutes. Um, I'm like, man, we better start recording. But the thing that Ashish said off camera was, um, you know, I don't know if I actually know anything. And this is what I love about guys like Ash. You're so humble, yet you're so knowledgeable. But there's some truth in that because none of us actually really know if we actually know anything because it's in the future. And, and we were talking about how things are changing so fast that even more so now than 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, like we don't really know what's coming and what's happening. I mean, and that's why I think having conversations like this are so important. And so as a side note, and then I'll turn it over to you to, you know, iterate on that. Um, We are not going to go through the four questions today because Ash has been on the show before. So if you want to, you know, hear Ash's Yeah, if you want to learn my four questions, you can go backwards a little bit. Go listen to that. We're just going to get into, you know, current economics, what's happening in the world. And Ash has some really great insights. So let's start first on, you know, back to that thought process around how fast things are changing. Yeah, you know, I think think bottom line, I think you're right in that um, the world is changing so fast. And I think that we have been 
we've been trained to sort of have these long-term plans, long-term visions, being able to, you know, project and look at like crystal balls and anticipate things. And, uh, you know, you hear a podcast, you're like, well, this guy said this, and this guy said this. And I think people take all that information and try to make decisions. And, um, I think that, I think that is just, um, smoke and mirrors, honestly. I mean, I think Mike, you're one of my closest friends and you make a, a, a real effort to find out what's real and what are the facts, which is like what we're trying to talk about today. Um, and, and I think that that, that really is the way that business owners or leaders have to start functioning is like, what's really happening in the information, in the data and do the best we can to make the best decision we can. Mm. You know, I think it's, it's really easy to assume that we know what we're talking about and to be right. And then when things fall apart, we blame everyone else or we blame the economy or we blame our employees or we blame whatever. And like, it's too big of a contrast. Right. And so I've just learned that, you know, we just have to do the best we can with the information we have and really get into the data, not, not only in our business, but in businesses close to us um, or ancillary businesses to figure out what's really going on and what do we do next? You know, I love, I, I, I don't remember exactly how he said it, but I, I remember a quote by Colin Powell and, and he was talking about, I think it's in his book. He was talking about, you know, great leaders in the world. And, and he said, the great leaders in the world make decisions with, and this is the part that I'm going to slaughter. I think it's 60 or 70% of the information. Right. And back yeah. to your point, like we're so consumed and focused on being right or wrong or, and it doesn't matter. That's all ego. What, what matters is taking as much information as we have and making the decisions at that point in time with the information we have. It's when we're frozen with fear and we're not making any decisions that we run into challenges. That's it right there. You just said it, right? It's like when we get frozen to not making decisions, I think we are often uh, so trying so hard to make the right decision, avoid the wrong decision. Mm. But in fact, there is no right or wrong decision. There's just decisions or no decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we have to be really thoughtful of like, who are we listening to and what information are we allowing in that helps us make the decisions that we make, right? And then how are we making the decisions in, in, term, in, in a factor of time? So one of the things that I really learned this year was that um, I probably should have been making decisions a little bit faster than I was making them mm -hmm. because I was so afraid of making the wrong decision that I wasn't making any decisions and it cost me probably a couple of months of time. And in this environment right now, a couple of months of time was really pretty drastic. And when you look back and you reflect on that, you, you, there's a lot of ego, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of uncertainty. And so, um, you know, I don't know the answers to this all this yet, but I definitely know that, you know, how do you think clearly and how do you get more focused on the information and how do you create a plan so that um, you're not overcome with all of those things in times where you know you should be making decisions efficiently and quickly. And then my my overall picture, because I think I work in a in a really fast moving industry. I think overall, I think leaders have to be making decisions much faster with less information than we probably ever have in the history of business. And uh, we were kind of talking about this little video you were talking about with Elon Musk, right? About ATMs, and it was probably like a decade or two ago. It's like mind blowing how fast things are moving and changing. And, you know, you can't assume that a 10 year plan is going to get you to where you want to be. 
yeah. anymore. It's just no longer that way. The yes. world is just not that place anymore. So yeah, it's crazy how fast. I mean, just even back to that video we were talking. I think it was probably from you know the eighties at some point, maybe early nineties. I don't know for sure, but he was literally standing in front of an ATM and he's like, this is an ATM. It's going to change the world. And you know, that, like you said, that wasn't that long ago. And, and I want to get into this in a few minutes, but the reason why I really wanted to have you back on is because you are in a business around hospitality. You have manufacturing in China. You've got ears to the ground. You know, you used to spend a lot of time in China. Now they won't let you back in. So I want to touch on all that here in a few minutes. However, before we go there, I want to stay on this for a second because uh, we we've had a shared coach. I don't know if you're still working with him, but Dr. John, I was, I was working with Dr. John yesterday and we were talking about, you know, some of the same stuff. And he made this comment um, that was uh, a quote from army general, John Pershing. And it said, um, infantry wins battles, logistics wins wars. And, you know, I'm just thinking like when you're talking about that leadership and being nimble and moving and everything else. And it's like, when he made that quote, because again, we were talking about some of this, like infantry, I would have just thought, you know, bigger army means means winning, but it's not necessarily always true. It's the logistics behind it. It's how fast can we move? And, and you could have 10,000 men, but if you can't feed them, if you can't get them information, if you can't get them product, if you can't get them bullets, if you can't get them food, that's what wins wars is the logistics side of it. And so when we bring that back to entrepreneurship and business owners, and I kind of want you to touch on something that you said you were talking about, feel free to rephrase this, but you were talking about last year and you like in this six or nine month period, you were at the top and you were at the bottom. And I think this is really important for business owners and, and entrepreneurs and investors to understand that the best of the best are adjusting. We're just adjusting faster than the next guy. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't expect that to be my year last year. Um, just to give a little context, I had the, we touched the bottom in our business and we touched the top in our business. So historical low, historical high. Historical high is pretty obvious. I mean, people can assume what that means, right? Uh, most sales, biggest backlog, most cash, what have you. The bl- lowest bottom is you're, you have a couple months to live. You're bleeding cash where you're, you're about to go out of business. Um, I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing how, how drastic the contrast can be in such a short amount of time. I think for me, it was, I think it was like six, maybe six or eight months. Mm. And I, I was also suffering with my health at the low and the bottom last year as well. And not to get in too much into that, but it's like, it's really amazing when we're at the bottom, who we become mm. and at the top, who we become. Right. Mm. And because I was kind of gifted with this like significant contrast in such a short amount of time, it gave me this clear perspective that I actually am in, in less control of things than I actually thought. And the only thing I can really control are like my internal factors. So, you know, you've taught me this really well. It was like, what's the one thing, right? You mentioned that all the time to me. It's like, what's the one thing? So at that time, I had to take care of me. I had to take care of my health. That was number one. And I was like, the work caused stress. Stress caused reduction of immunity. Immunity caused blah, 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 blah. So like, we often think that solving our business and making sure our business succeeds will somehow take care of everything else. Mm -hmm. But I was drowning everywhere. So I quickly pivoted to me, took care of me, had to get myself straight, made some real clear boundaries on the company about, okay, 
these are the decisions we need to make. If these things don't happen, we have to do these things in this much time. And unfortunately, those things did. We had to make really tough decisions and we held on for dear life. And um, and then we hit the top. And what's really interesting by that in that also is I think that, you know, and I'm just speaking from my short time experience, uh, not only on this planet, but also in business, is that I think that the most successful people that you observe actually are not the smartest. They're not the wealthiest. They don't have the most talent. They don't have the best pedigree. They often are just the most persistent and they have the most patience. Mm. And they learn through these ups and downs, ups and downs, ups and downs. And they learn that if I can just slow down my decision-making, make sure I'm using the right information to make the decisions and focus on survival, then I'll prosper. And I think when you look at life on a long-term perspective, I think that's what happens. But because of technology, because of information flow, because of the rapid data uh, era we live in, we all expect that to be really, really short. Three, four, five year cycles, 10 year cycles, whatever. I don't think it really works that way. Mm. So that's my two cents. Um, and I'm still trying to figure it out too, but it seemed to work for me. And I re- looking back now, I really realized like how much I was punishing myself and how how um how much of uh, how much lack you feel when you're going down that way and then how much ego and how much credit you give yourself when things are all great and in reality um when you level all those things off it has nothing to do with any of that mm. it really has to do with routine and steadiness and focus and persistence and patience and, and all all the catchphrase words right yeah. it really has to do with that more than it does intelligence or money or talent yeah you know you said something off camera and i want to kind of dive into this you you are again when i talk about ears to the ground we can talk a little bit about your business you're in the hospitality business yeah. um but you've been working out of China, getting product product from China for a long time. You shifted in COVID and started doing a lot more in Mexico and then peeled back. But you were talking specifically about America and the fact that, you know, you don't necessarily think that America is going to become this, you know, major manufacturing powerhouse again. So I want to kind of address all of that just for the yeah. audience and listeners. But before we go off on that, you, you know, just the fact that you had so much swing in your business. And by the way, we're not talking to a guy who has a $700,000 business here. Um, when I met Ash, I had no context whatsoever about how large his business is. And I'm not going to say how large it is. You can, if you want to, but this is not a guy that's, you know, we get in these masterminds and people are like, I'm a seven figure business owner. And, and that's a big deal. Like most businesses don't hit seven figures. But when I really started talking to Ash and got to know him and I found out like what kind of organization this man's running, holy moly. But for a business to hit their low and for a business to hit their high, it just shows the time that we're living in and how fast things are speeding up. And the thing that I want to say before we get into, you know, China, Mexico, US and kind of like a future look at what's happening here we're in a time where businesses are shifting so much. Like, I mean, even my, uh, one of my core businesses is manufactured housing, affordable housing. And pre-COVID, like it's a pretty boring business. It was like buy distressed mobile home parks. There's a bunch of empty lots. We remodel homes. We bring a resident in. We bring in new homes. You know, we can get them from the plant. It's 
four to six weeks to get a house. It's a very boring business and affordable housing has huge demand. When 2020 hit, everything went to, like the wheels came off, like literally because we went from getting house. Yeah. In terms of demand. Yeah. Well, demand from residents, but also, you know, our business model was buying distressed properties with a bunch of empty lots, bringing in new homes. Our home delivery timeline went from four to eight weeks to 12 to 18 months, maybe, maybe. 12 to 18 months, maybe. Maybe, maybe. And um, we used to be able to say, hey, I want this home. Great. It's going to deliver in four weeks. When it ships, you can give us 50%. When it's set, you can give us the rest. To we need a deposit and we're not sure when it's going to ship completely shifted our business model. And I haven't really gone into the weeds about, but like who would have seen that coming? Like who would have seen the industry that ships between eight and 10,000 homes a month, like complete homes go down to like, we don't know when. And this is the times that we're living in. And there's, before I turn this back to you on again, Mexico, China, US, the thing that kind of opened my eyes to this is like this global The thing that makes the world that we live in today great is that we're a global uh, community, right? Everybody's doing business with everybody else. The the big powerhouses back in the day, like, you know, even back when what made America great was like the industrial, we were self-sustaining, we built our own stuff, like industrial revolution, like that's, that's what made us great. Now, in this day and age, we're a globally connected world. Everybody relies on everybody else, which is awesome in one respect. But when we see what's happened in the last couple of years and just see everything like come to a halt, it was the first time that the whole world was sick together. It was the first time that the whole world couldn't get food, supplies. We realized how fragile our system is. And I never thought it would have affected my boring business, but it kicked my rear end and it's got me thinking on a whole different plane. So that's why I wanted to bring you back in and just talk about this from a macro global perspective. Well, let's, let's, I want to ask you some questions because I don't, I don't think, and similar in my business is that I don't think we've ever experienced supply and demand curves to be so drastically pivoting and not know how to deal with it and how to meet supply and demand in the middle, right? So demand goes through the roof, supply plummets. And so what do you do? Well, it, it, it was, it was crazy because we were literally at a stalemate. And by the way, I feel like we're back there still in certain markets and sectors. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, like new construction, like the home, the home builders right now, it's not the case in our industry anymore. They're back online. They have a surplus of inventory, Now, I don't know how long that's going to last, but it's got me thinking, you know, my head's on a swivel, head on a swivel. The Navy SEALs, like all the spec ops, people are always talking about that head on a swivel. As business owners, I think we have always known that, but like that nine month or six month period that you're talking about, best and worst, like we're in a whole different time. So what do you do? I mean, for us, it was literally just kind of adjusting our whole business model. Instead of really buying from one manufacturer, we had to start talking to six other manufacturers in order to even get the amount of homes that we could even, that we need, maybe. And then we had to adjust our business model too, because the one company that we were linked to, and maybe there's a lesson in this, we were, we were connected at the hip with one supplier. And it was awesome because they, they build a great home. They have great financing. Um, they would floor our homes for us. But then when it gets to 12 to 18 months, it would literally take me 14 years 
to, to get all the homes set from one manufacturer if we would have stayed on that timeline. So I had to start figuring out how do I buy from other manufacturers? How do I get the financing on the front end for this stuff, which um, was a whole other business model. And then how do we get the financing on the back end? Because the company we were buying from was they not only would they manufacture the homes, they would floor the homes for us. And then they would carry that until we brought a resident in and then they would finance the resident. So it was like this beautiful package deal that I never saw falling apart. But when it finally fell apart, I realized that like I had hedged my bets all on one manufacturer, just like you did in China. Right. So there's like lessons with all of this that kind of come back to the same thing. And it's like diversity, multiple exits. Like it taught me so much of like, um, you know, we started with this today, like the 10 year plan is out the window or like this idea of like, I would have never thought that the largest manufacturing supplier in America would have had problems bringing me homes, but they did. Yeah. It's crazy. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. I don't even know where to start, man. Well, let's talk about your business. So, I, yeah. So we uh, manufacture hotel furniture. Um, we focus primarily on hospitality. Um, we work on three to five star hotels, both case goods and seating. And we used to manufacture here in America um, in Los Angeles, actually, we used to do upholstery here in LA. I, I want to say that we were making some of the highest quality upholstery at that time in Los Angeles, which actually used to be a huge upholstery hub. Um, and we were also producing our own case goods out of Indonesia. But uh, in the last uh, probably seven years, we shut all that down. And we now primarily work with manufacturers, partner manufacturers, similar to what you were just talking about um, in China and a little bit we were doing in Mexico. And, you know, I think you touched on a trend, which I want to talk about really quickly, is that I think we in the last 30 to 40 years, the entire world has focused on globalization of everything, Uh, trade, currency, um, freight and logistics and technology has allowed that to happen for us to move product or supplies around the world efficiently and cost effectively. Um, and the geopolitical environment supported that. Well, probably, I, I mean, I'm not a political science guy, but I think in the last 10 years or so, and definitely accelerated by COVID, um, I don't think that's the case anymore. And I think there's going to be a really strong push to uh, decelerate globalization. However, in my two cents, um, it's going to be really hard and it's going to take a long time. So in my perspective, let's just talk about America for a second. We are really vulnerable to um, a few things. Now, we, we, we buy a lot of stuff. We are the number one consumers in the world. We like our stuff. We do not know how to save. We often spend all of our money on consumer goods. Um, and I don't think that trend's going to change, right? Um, we like our stuff cheap and we like it fast. We do not educate we don't educate our our young population anymore to manufacture. Mm-hmm. We don't have, I, I don't know if you, like, I mean, I'm young enough to know, like we used to have home ec in high school or middle school. We used to work on cars. We used to have woodworking class. We used to have um, all these like hands-on types of things at a very young age, learning how to make stuff with our hands. 
that's no longer the case. Hmm. Right. So if you think about it a decade or two from now, we're not going to be starting to manufacture more. We're going to go the opposite direction unless we start from that phase. Right. Mm -hmm. So the premise that all of a sudden we're going to be an industrial country again, and we're going to start building all of our own cars, all of our own furniture, all of our own stuff, everything we consume. I just don't see it. I don't think it's realistic. We're also really vulnerable to, um, because we buy so much and we like stuff cheap, we always go to find the thing that's the, the lowest cost manufacturer. And often that's not in America. So if it's not in China, it's in Malaysia, it's in Vietnam, it's in Turkey, it's in Mexico, it's somewhere else, but it's not in America, right? Mm-hmm. So it's going to be interesting to see. We, we experienced, personally, we experienced a real strong resistance to China as a country during COVID and during this freight supply chain stuff, we can supply chain is a really interesting topic. We can talk about that too. Um, but no one would let us say the C word. We couldn't even say the C word. So we had to quickly pivot. If we wanted to say, sell anything, we had to move domestically or to Mexico. So we did that on the ask of our customers and it was really challenging, really difficult. And we were doing 20% of what we normally would do over there, but we were just trying to bring dollars in and service some people. And be it that demand was also falling, right? And in six months or so, I think the marketplace realized that this is not a sustainable solution and pivoted, like you talk about rotating heads, like no thinking. Okay, we're going back. We're not going to ask any more questions. We're going to be quiet. We're going to stop at, you know, we're not going to have this challenge anymore. We're going to tell customers they have no choice. Just go. Mind blowing. China was ready. They have a fully vertically integrated supply chain. And, uh, and we started producing like crazy. And meanwhile, consumer demand was falling. So when we get into logistics now, you know, when COVID happened, people were sitting at home consuming more goods than we've ever consumed. If, the, if you look at global demand for consumer goods during COVID increased by like 10%. Mm. But in America, it increased by 40%. Wow. Okay. So... We got all this money from the government. We bought our stuff and it left our US. Mm. It went all around the world to import all this furniture or all the stuff that we were buying. So the demand for this limited amount, this limited supply, which let's call it a pipe, right? Containers, vessels, trucks, rail yards. That's a pipe mm. of our ability to bring stuff in. It gets highly congested. It increases demand by 40%. So prices skyrocket. And when I say skyrocket, I mean $2,000 a container to upwards of $25,000 a container. So almost more than 10X in the span of like, I think it was like maybe three months. So it was mind blowing. No one could have anticipated that. Yeah. But we all, what we also learned is that people would pay. Mm. Like we like our stuff. We're going to pay. I think a little bit of inflation is probably caused by this, but we paid. Customers paid. It trickles down to the end users and we paid. So we got our stuff, we paid a lot of money for it, and we can continue to consume. And you know, now now consumer demand, now everyone has like I guess my economic perspective is now everybody has their stuff, so there's nothing else to buy. So consumer demand has fallen through the floor. So the demand for containers has fallen through the floor. So I think we're now at like fourteen or fifteen hundred bucks a container for just a box port to port. I mean, it's mind blowing. I would have never assumed that was going to be that low. And in the meantime, there's this backlog of these vessels that are trying to increase supply of, of movement. Like there's tens of thousands of, of vessels, not probably not tens of thousands of vessels, 
hundreds of vessels that can hold tens of thousands of containers in the pipeline. So supply is just going to increase even more. Mm. So it's just fascinating what's going on in the world. In a, I'm enjoying, I'm in, enjoying it. In a two year like swing and two years, I, I probably, probably a little bit less than that. Yeah. Just mind blowing it, all these dynamic shifts. And uh, yeah, so I think, I think that we are, are highly dependent on China. I think everyone is expecting a, a you know, a lot of resistance and challenges in, in that relationship, but um, it'll be interesting to see what happens if we completely shut ourselves off and, and what the looming threats, you know, what happens with all these looming threats. I really don't know. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to do some rapid fire. Cause I mean, we still have 20 minutes, but I want to, I, I have so many questions. Yeah, go. And so if we need to, if we need to get in the weeds on something, feel free. So my first question, let's talk about you, you've said so many things, but let's talk about vacation and hospitality. You had mentioned off camera, you know, what the next two to three years look like. Yeah. The next two to three years for me is kind of like the iffy zone. Well, one thing that I'm confident of when it comes to like real estate and all of that, like I'm a long, I'm a long game player. It's these little short windows, like 2020 that just like throws my boring business and the wheels fall off. Right. But long-term, yes. if I buy a property today or I bought it three years ago, I'm convinced that five to 10 years from now, I'm going to be in good shape. What does hospitality and vacation look like in your mind um, in the next few years? So from everything that we're studying and learning, it's really clear that travel is back to pre-COVID levels. So the TSA throughput, people going through airports, it's higher than pre-COVID levels. Um, hotels are at the highest occupancy and the highest ADRs than they've ever been, which is the average daily rate, the amount of money that they're making on, on a revenue basis. You know, I think that uh, I don't see that to slow down. I think people have been cooped up in their homes for so long, uh, not only leisure, but also business. So I just read an article in the New York Times that businesses are expecting more than 50 percent of businesses are expecting to increase their spend and time traveling in business higher than pre-COVID levels. Right. So that means even business travel and um, leisure travel has already been there, but I think business travel will also increase. So the hospitality, leisure industry, lodging specifically, um, operationally looks really, really strong. I think interest rates are are kind of an interesting little speed bump. I don't think it's going to slow down people's long term investing habits or investing behaviors. Um, but people will be cautious and concerned and they'll, they'll see what happens and recalibrate their IRRs, et cetera. Um, maybe they'll have to, you know, change their equity stack at whatever, but I think deals will continue to happen. They'll weed out the small guys and big guys will continue to invest. Um, and there's also, you know, we, we have to remember we're the largest hotel market in the world. We have like 70,000 hotels in the U S mm. there is, there's a huge demand for hotels. And one of the things that happened during COVID is everyone went to this short-term rental business, right? And that's gone. Short-term rentals are really starting to slow down and people are going back to their hotels and services are starting to increase there. And there's a huge backlog of unrenovated property. If you talk about 70,000 hotels, there's a lot of projects that have to turn and get cleaned up and compete in the market for new product, et cetera. So I think in the next couple of years for hospitality, it'll be strong. Um, I think people will be cautious, but I also think that there's, there's a lot of pent up demand. The brands also are pushing. I know this is rapid fire. I'm trying to go fast, no, no, it's but fine. the brands, 
the brands are also pushing their franchisees to renovate and compete and increase the pro- you know the quality of the product. So yeah, that's what I see. You know, I love it. And there's there's two thoughts that I just kind of want to. You were talking earlier about you know the 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 rise in pricing and inflation, and and I'm sitting here as I'm listening to all of this. Um, you know, the Fed is on this like war horse trying to slow things down. And when I think about it, just one of my, I think, superpowers is just, you know, there, there's some real complexities in the world. And dude, what you've touched on even today is very complex. But also, if you just bring it down to the simplest form, which you're doing a great job of, that's why I wanted to have you back on. When when I think of things simply as a business owner, I used to say this, when they increase my pricing, my taxes, et cetera, like I'm going to pass the savings on to the consumer. Um, mm-hmm. The other side of that is true as well. When I think about business owners everywhere, if if a price of a product in you know that I'm selling or a home or whatever, the manufactured housing industry is a great example. So our prices increased quite a bit. We used to get right. a brand new three bedroom, two bath house like fully set for like forty two to forty five thousand. Our cost now, depending on the home, can be approaching sixty to sixty five to seventy thousand. Now. Our manufacturers just came out a couple months ago and said, hey, we're doing a 12% price decrease. Well, that's a 12% price decrease on a 50% price increase. increase. So I just don't think that as much as the Fed's on this war horse and they're trying to bring pricing back down, businesses are not just going to be like, okay, great. We're just going to give back. So I just don't, I don't see, I I don't see us like recorrecting price all back to that. And so we just got to get over it figure out how to make more money and just move on. And so, um, man, you just gave us so much insight. The other thing, the other takeaway that I got from that too, when we watched COVID happen and, you know, people were isolating and trying to, I mean, even we were, you were in the couples mastermind, you and Sedgel, and we decided to go away from hotels and to the luxury Airbnbs, which we will probably continue that model with our mastermind, just because we love the intimacy. However, I think a lot of events are probably going to go back to the hotels. The businesses are back to traveling. I think what sustained some of this through that time was people were able to, because they were working virtually, they were able to travel. And so Airbnb was up, hotels were up, people could go on vacation and work three hours. I think you and I talked about this before. Yes. And then, you know, they could go to Disneyland in the afternoon. Well, a lot of the virtual work is going away and all of that, but businesses are coming back. And so... There's all this negativity in the news cycle and people want us to believe a certain thing and the Fed's trying real hard to slow everything down. But because of these opposite cycles, people traveling, businesses not, people traveling less, maybe businesses traveling more, it's just cyclical. And so that was like an aha moment for me as you're talking totally. through that. I think I need to listen to the episode we did like six or eight months ago, because to be honest, I think we were making, we made assumptions like we're making now based on the information we had. And I think even today, like just in terms of like work from home culture, I think that's really different than it was six months ago. Mm-hmm. I think people are asking, uh, you know, team members to come in the office more diligently. Um, I think the flexibility is starting to go away. I think it's becoming more of an employer's market than an employee's market. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it's all changing. I think we're just trying to adapt and and stay stable. Yeah. And I'm always trying to look at the indicators that are right in front of me. One, one indicator, like, dude, it takes me 20 minutes longer to get into the office in downtown Austin. And I specifically noticed this, like, let's call it probably June, July, August of last year. 
Like it went from taking like 12 minutes to get downtown to 25 to 30. And I used to park on the second floor, maybe third floor of the parking garage. And now it's like the seventh floor or eighth floor. And you know, the, the building that we're, that we have our office in is like, they're expanding and they're adding two more office. And I'm just looking at all of this and, you know, people are laying off people left and right, supposedly. And I know that, I know it is happening. I know people are getting impacted. So anyway, I just try to bring it back to like, you know, what I'm seeing on the ground. And, and again, that's why I wanted to talk to you. So did you have something to say on that? Uh, no. Are you sure? <laughs> you can't. Yeah, we keep going. We right. keep going everywhere, but keep let's keep going. I'm curious. You had made a comment about uh, manufacturing not coming back to America, like you know, a lot yeah. of people think it's going to. Um, but you had hit on industrial. Talk to me about that. Industrial, in terms of well, you were saying that you know you don't think that <clears throat> manufacturing is fully going to come back, but supply oh, yeah. chain, distribution, manufacturing. Yeah, no, I think I think because of the nature of our economy, we're a consumer based economy. I think that we're where there will be growth is warehousing and distribution, logistics, trucking, uh, the infrastructure of product being moved. We want stuff to, we want to click a button and we want something to show up at our doorstep tomorrow. That means that that infrastructure has to improve. It doesn't necessarily mean that um, that has to be made a hundred miles away from me. Yeah. It just means that it has to be moved from there to here. Yeah. And with, you know, I think relatively interest rates are still, you know, if they are a reflection of the cost of money, interest rates are still, money is still cheap in the grand scheme of, of you know, 200 year economy. Yeah. So it's still cheaper to inventory goods close by than it is to manufacture um, in, you know, goods close by. So I don't see us being a highly industrial manufacturing economy for everything that we consume. Yeah. And, you know, they're moving semiconductors and technology and um, we're, we're going to be definitely a services business. Um, but I see a lot of outsourcing of manufacturing. In fact, in our business, we were forced to outsource uh, even even staff to a certain perspective. I know there's a big movement in investing in real estate about VAs, but I think there's there's going to be a push to figure out how to reduce overhead costs for operating businesses as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause cost of cost of labor is, is just skyrocketing. It's more challenging to get talent or retain talent. So how do we, how do we compete if our costs are constantly keep going up and we can't charge? Um, so I think there's going to be a, a globalization of, of people too, if that hasn't already started. You want to hear my conspiracy theory? Totally. Um, so we talked about this earlier, but if infantry wins battles, logistics wins wars. And so I've been kind of thinking about all this, the Fed interest rates, you know, trying to slow this down, even from a real estate perspective, it's not, I mean, it's working in the sense that we're not moving as many houses. However, nobody's selling because if they sell, where are they going to buy? Because then they're going to have to pay more for a home, a higher interest rate. Um, So, you know, I feel like we've kind of hit this stalemate. And so the Fed, the Fed is independent. We understand that. However, the Fed kind of controls a lot of what happens in the economy and the president and Congress. And, and so it's very well linked. And so even though the Treasury and the Fed are independent and blah, 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 here's my thing on logistics. And as you were talking about this, when we talk about fuel, I was just talking to an investor yesterday. And this investor asked me, like, what 
what's the down, like what, what could happen? Like what happened in 2020 to your plan? Because we're back on, on inventory. We're buying inventory. We've solved our financing problem. Demand is still at an all time high. He said, so what, what, what could, what, like, what could cause a problem here? And I'm like, well, vendors, we can't get vendors to like set homes, infrastructure, blah, blah, blah. Um, or, you know, we can't get delivery of homes like semis, diesel is this conversation that keeps happening. And so if I'm the Fed and I can't slow this thing down with interest rates, then what else do we start breaking? Logistics. We start breaking Mm -hmm. logistics. And I hate to say that as a conspiracy theorist in my brain, but like their mandate is 2% inflation. And even if they say, okay, we're going to allow three or four, like they have to intentionally break the market they have that's to. what they're trying to do. I think they've made that public. You're right. You're totally right. And we don't know the we don't know the repercussions of this yet. They're intentionally trying to break the market, slow down consumerism, increase the cost, increase unemployment. All of those things have significant impacts to day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Recession is like a nice broad stroke word. Yeah. But like you're right. Just just because now the supply chain can manufacture stuff, but doesn't mean you can get it. Yeah. There's no labor. There's no guys to drive the truck. Yeah. There's no guy to unload the truck. There's no fuel because no you're Ukraine. No fuel or the cost of fuel is too high. Whatever it is. So we're in for you know a couple more years of of pivots and and adjustments and learnings and how do we deal with this now? And so yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. It's very amazing how they have one tool. They have this one tool: interest rates. And they crank it and they crank it back and they crank it up. And the, the impact of that is so dramatic. Yeah. I just don't know quite what it does yet. I don't yeah. think they know. Yeah. I think they have some other tools. I think it's uh, mind control, you know, <laughs> no, like literally. Um, and I know this sounds crazy, but I think this is important. Um, not mind control, like actual mind control, but like the reason why I wanted to talk to you about China. So China's alive and well, right? live and well i mean they're they're definitely having their covid uh surge now right i mean in the last i think the last 30 days or so they've really opened up china for the first time in two and a half years mm-hmm. so obviously what's going to happen is people are going to get sick and pass away and mm-hmm. there's going to be surges of, of slowdowns or whatever yeah but they're back to normal i mean in let's say in 30 days china will just be like america where everyone's immune and we're back to business the borders are completely open trade is happening so people can travel now. I think as of Jan 8th, people can travel in and out of China freely. So it's, yeah. it's wide open. So I was listening to Jim Rickards the other day who writes some amazing books and I love listening to him, but he's like, he's done a lot of financial war games and stuff with the CIA and the treasury department. And um, so I like to listen to him, but also like he was talking about how China is going to come to a complete halt. And that's one of the reasons why I like, like listening and, and talking to you is because like, I want to see is it really that bad? And so, you know, I, I, when I said mind control, I was half joking, but also like the news and the press cycle. And if there's one takeaway that I want to make sure when we go back to head on a swivel, um, that's the important thing for, you know, whether the audience is, you know, a W2 person that's worried about their job and, and investing and how can I find good real estate deals or they're an entrepreneur or they already have an investment portfolio. The one takeaway um, yeah, Ash runs a very big, successful business, but also in the same six or nine month period, it was also almost at the verge of, 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 you know, being done. And so head on a swivel, 
we don't know exactly. We started the show by saying this. We don't know exactly what's coming. Nobody does. But yeah. head on a swivel. And the more information that we can get, the better off. So I have one last question for you. Yes, uh, sir. We might have to do like five shows. I don't know. Yeah. India. So about. I'm curious about India. You guys are, your family's actually from yeah. India. Is yeah. India like this sleeping giant? Is it like talking? You know, I, I honestly don't know enough to speak intelligently about India, but I will say that I, I would say that they're, they're definitely a sleeping giant. You know, they have a, what, what, what I see is that they have an incredibly young population, highly educated, young, ambitious population. And that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, they have, they have their own obstacles like every other country. Um, they're pretty neutral in terms of, of global politics and war and, and being loud. They just want to, they just want to do stuff, mm-hmm. service the world in their own way. So yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, from my business perspective, it's really challenging to go to India just because of the product I make and what we need. Um, but I don't think that's the case in many other categories. And I think India has been able to sp- supply and provide a lot of opportunities. I mean, I think Apple is making iPhones in, mm-hmm. in India now. Um, but I think it's interesting when we think about all these other places, which is why I, I'm kind of biased to China. Is like Apple is investing billions of dollars to go open up an iPhone factory in India. But I think they're offsetting maybe 3 to 5% of their overall supply. Mm. So like, it's irrelevant. Yeah. In the in the grand scheme of overall supply, we're talking about three to five yeah. percent. So it makes headlines because it's like, oh, thank God, China. You know, we're leaving China. Apple's leaving China, but we're talking about three to five percent. Yeah. If they don't have China, they're screwed. Yeah. Right. So, what does that mean if we don't have China to the world? What does it mean to America? I, I don't quite know yet, and I am a little biased only because I don't know what the solution is. Yeah. But it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, that's interesting. I just remember a uh, interview with Jim Rogers and this was during COVID. I was out working in the garden and he said, don't forget about India. India is going to be a force. And I was just like, so I was just curious what your, what your thoughts were on that. So, okay, we got to, we got to wrap this thing up. So um, final thoughts, where can people find you? Um, And let's do this again. Uh, yeah, no, let's definitely do this again. It's always an honor to spend time with you, my brother. Um, People can find me on my Instagram at Ashish Nathu. Um, I also have a podcast called The Rich Equation Podcast. You can find it on Apple and Spotify. Um, I'm everywhere. You can email me at me at ashishnathu.com. And uh, here on, on Investing for Freedom podcast, I think we've done two or three episodes together. And I think it's cool to be able to keep doing this over, you know, a couple times a year because you get to see like what's changing and what's evolving in the conversation. Um, so I love it, man. And Mike really does have his finger on the pulse. I think secretly, selfishly, this is why he has the podcast. So he knows all the information from all the smartest guys in the country. That's right. That's right. But yeah, it's always good to talk to you, brother. You too, man. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. If you've found value in this episode and you know someone who's wanting to start or move further along in their journey toward investing for freedom, I would be forever grateful if you would share this show with them and help me get this message out to more listeners. Also, if you enjoy what you've heard, I would appreciate it if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. And until the next episode, cheers to moving further along in your journey of investing for freedom.